News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. In these challenging times, the federal government has no time for ineffectiveness and little tolerance for failure. The COVID-19 pandemic is the most recent crisis to show that we need to do things differently. Recognizing that addressing many of today's challenges will require public agencies to change the way they do business, forcing us to re-examine how government works. This can be done by applying the core principles and lessons learned from agile software development to organizational management in government. Amongst other things, this new agile management paradigm makes customer or end user satisfaction the top priority. It empowers staff members and teams and uses both networks and innovative ways of working to facilitate innovation and solve complex problems. What are the principles of agile government? What are the new and emerging competencies required for agile public governance? And how can agile principles and practices be taught in schools of public affairs and administration? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Angela Evans, visiting fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government and former Dean of Public Affairs at the LBJ School, the University of Texas at Austin. Angela, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for the opportunity to discuss agile governance with you and your audience. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's start off by, uh, could you describe for us, Angela, the principles of agile government? Sure. The principles really are a mixture of characteristics, organizational attributes, and really aspirational goals that if you take them all together, offer a schema of how governments can and should tackle their responsibilities, particularly when they're developing policies, implementing programs, and formulating or promulgating regulations. Currently, there are 10 principles, which include such factors as establishing a very clear mission for the work, using cross-disciplinary and cross-functional teams through collaborations, embracing innovation, not moving away from it, insisting on timeliness and the relevancy of the work, uh, using metrics and, uh, and looking at those metrics along the way to judge the progress of your work, really asking people to be persistent in no matter what the challenge, and really importantly is ensuring that leadership personally enroll in the work um, of of their organization and agency and eliminate roadblocks and uh, assume risks. And um, the first draft of the Agile government principles were released in September of 2019 at a forum co-sponsored by the National Academy of Public Administration and the IBM Center for the Business of Government. And more than 30 experts from academia, government, industry, and the nonprofit sector were assembled and asked to comment on the principles. So they had quite a bit of input in that. And after two years of robust discussions and back and forth, led by the Academy and IBM Center, 
they developed the principles which first appeared in a piece entitled, quote, The Road to Agile Government. And this was jointly released by the Academy and the Center and was coordinated by Ed DeSiv. Uh, these principles uh, will be reviewed from time to time. That's the expectation and actually um, as we're speaking right now, it's, we are, are looking at the principles and they may go through some adjustments or revisions. That's wonderful, Angela. So it's a good context. Um, I was wondering the call for action to use uh, agile management practices to address some of the challenges we're facing in the public sector. Could you give us a sense of some of the most significant challenges facing public administration today? Yes, I'm um, a talented colleague of mine, Neil Kleiman, who's at NYU, I think expressed it really well. Uh, and he put the context of public administration this way. He said, it feels as if 21st century problems are colliding with 20th century approaches to public administration. And I think this is really spot on. Uh, so what's this resulted in is a public failure after public failure. Many policy challenges, they go unaddressed or they're recast as partisan, or they're presented as totally unsolvable. All the while, um, American citizens' faith in both the public systems and the people who run them uh, just continues to plummet. There's a deep sense that government just does not know how to solve problems for the overall public good, and governments fumble or fail. And even when they do succeed, their accomplishments are not really recognized or simply taken for granted. So. Um, yeah, I was listening to President Biden. He used this term inflection point, and I've used this before as well. I believe we are in an inflection point in our society. We're just not experiencing historic pandemic or the outrage of social um, injustice, but we have immense uncertainties arising from so many complex situations in the globe. We have the largest migration of the human species ever. We have the most accelerated changes in the way the earth renews and adjusts itself. We have a proliferation of the most insidious viruses and microbes that can paralyze entire societies. We have the unchecked potential of unintended consequences of artificial intelligence. We have shifts in the political order, dilution of the rule of law, the growing strain between ensuring individual rights while preserving the public good. And all of this seems at some point to really risk the rupture of America's steady state. So, you know, how do we tackle? These are extraordinary high stake challenges, complicated. complicated. So I think public administration, uh, and I think of this um, in, in two things matter in public administration. First, the people who make up the public service and the environments in which they work. Not only do we have to attract and retain a steady flow of dedicated experts who, whose intellect, their grit, their problem solving skills can be applied directly and swiftly to the challenges we face. We also have to ensure that the environments and cultures in which they work give them space and support to maximize their chances for success. You know, I find that we can't attract and recruit energetic, you know, purpose-filled, smart, and hardworking individuals. These are people we see in our public affairs schools, and then place them in organizational structures managed or led by those who do not know how to manage this talent or who are themselves restricted by old protocols. I see these as really 
some of the most pressing problems for public administration today. Very interesting. So, you know, I was wondering, and I, I use this term strategic weapons, but what are the strategic weapons for seeding agility and, and more importantly, in the context of the challenges we're facing, the resiliency aspect in public administration? I think this is a really important question, Michael, and I see three. I'm, I'm sure there's more, but let me distill it to three. First, absolutely securing a well-trained, well-prepared individuals who are comfortable with change and who are comfortable with adjusting and who can take risks and who can step into the arena of the unknown. We always talk about the arena, uh, stepping into the arena. And also we have a keen sense of curiosity and who will persist despite obstacles, just won't give up. They have to be persistent. And it's not enough to secure these individuals. If we're lucky enough to find them and allure them to public service, we also have to keep their skills fresh. We have to ensure that they have the information that they need and to continue to learn. And we have to have their backs. When they act, we have to back them up. So that's one of the first things I think is a is as you define a strategic weapon. You know, this is this is one of the things we have. It's the people. Second, I think it's cultivating very cohesive networks among leaders who are dedicated to attacking some of these most contentious and complex problems and who don't give up, um, who want to work together, who can give up a little bit of their governing structure and their power to come together to learn and to grow. And I think we're fortunate that we not only have formal organizations thinking about agile governance and investing in its potential, we also have talent within schools of public affairs and in the public sector who understand its power and who've actually used this. Um, and so we have examples of successes here. And so we have to celebrate those and see if we can generalize these outward uh, to other problems. And third, and perhaps most importantly, our strategic weapon is our democracy. Our democracy depends on a government to, that works. It, it depends on a government that ensures that the rule of law is reasonable. Um, you know, that policymaking is based upon facts, that government is managed efficiently and fairly, and that equity and justice um, prevails. We must, we, we have to earn the public trust and governing with integrity and common sense will go a long way in regaining that trust. Um, you might have some grandsons who are Star Wars uh, freaks, frankly, and they have a quote, there's a Jedi quote that they told me that says, do or don't do, there is no try. So we must do, and I think our democracy really depends on us doing that. Well, Angela, you mentioned uh, as part of your first one, the people and attracting them, is that they're going to need some different skills and competencies. And I was wondering, what are the new and emerging competencies that you see required for agile public governance? Well, Michael, before I offer some, I want to place my answer in a, a bit of a context. Over the decades that I've been involved in public administration and public policy, researchers and management gurus have identified scores of skills and competencies that they've deemed critical to management success. Many come you know, with their own sophisticated, nicely packaged schematics and drawings and you know, circles and arrows and um, you know, to establish a bona fides. And really, I think they're all seeking this holy grail of competencies. And so this quest is longstanding and covers a diverse set of views and an extensive range of skills. But the competencies that I present in, in what I've been talking about through the blogs reflect my own experience and years of seeing these skills in practice and seeking these skills and those I hired 
um, to serve in the Congressional Research Service when I was there, as well as years I spent in academia reviewing and adjusting course content so that these things better align with the needs of those actually involved in public administration. But as I discussed in my blog, there are several critical competencies that are essential for agile governance. And, and I'm offering them not as a neat and clean checklist that when all of the boxes are checked, one has developed the perfect specimen of a, a public leader, but rather that taken together, these competencies present an integrated portrait of how public servants, public servants succeed in, in their work. So I'll, I'll mention a few. The first one I, I uh, call force multipliers, and we can go into more detail on this uh, a little bit later if you'd like. But this is really an important, a, for, a force multiplier is somebody who can influence without authority. This is one of the most powerful and valuable skills a public leader can have. Uh, so you have to be able to identify, secure, and, and maintain resources that will be persistent and stay with you in your work. And often this requires developing very high octane teams made up of people from a lot of different disciplines for whom you do not have direct administrative control. So trying to influence without authority is really an important competency. And the other, another one is possessing an appreciation for action and a sense of timing. It's important to know when maintaining the status quo is good and when it presents an obstacle to solving problems and then how to break through those obstacles. So really understanding the timing of it all uh, and being very careful about just totally doing things because you wanna act. I think another one is being curious and this is really in somebody's nature. And, you know, having the ability to ask questions, to seek new information, um, to be a little skeptical uh, about what you're hearing, and to test your ideas on a variety of audiences and people. Often this will lead you to change your mind or have new insights um, in different ways of approaching the problems. Um, another uh, competency is really your adaptability. You have to expect the unexpected in public service and you have to welcome it. You can't be afraid of it. You can't you know, um, move away from it. You have to welcome it. So in doing that, that means you have to be, we use the word agile, I call it adaptable. You have to be able to shift the techniques you're using, the methods you're using, the perspectives that you have or bringing in new perspectives. And then you have to welcome the fresh ideas and fresh starts. Um, the other thing I think is really understated or doesn't often, people don't talk about this, but you have to know the levers that affect policymakers' receptivity to input or to suggestions. You, understanding the perspectives of those who could benefit from your work is critical to establishing the relevance of that work uh, and being sought after as a trusted confidant. You have to be informed about the motivations and challenges and timing that drive policymakers' actions and provide the context in which this work will be assessed and valued. Because if it's not feasible, if your work is brilliant but not feasible to be implemented, it, it becomes almost irrelevant. Um, and I think, again, what we talk about is taking risks. And this is, you know, people who have information and data, um, but it may not be enough. It may not be the data that they really need, but they have to have the confidence in being comfortable with the unknown. And, go ahead and move. Um, so sometimes it's understanding how to construct action to allow for adjustments um, 
or to allow to be prepared for the next time you have to act. So this idea of taking risks, um, a lot of people speak about it, but I think it's a critical competency. Uh, we talk about coalition building. This is not new. A lot of people think about coalitions and how you bring um, coalitions together and keep them together. And I think one of the things that we have to instill in, in students about this is learning how to make it easy for others to help you. Um, and that means you know, understanding your audience and the differences among them and the challenges they face and how you seek to use and come from where they're coming from to bring them together. And uh, to recruit allies, you know, idea people, you know, can be special interest people, opinion leaders, media, but looking at people that can broaden your sphere of influence and can help keep that coalition together. Um, we talk a lot about engaging the community, you know, going out and looking at stakeholders. But here's one thing that's really important, knowing who to involve in the work and when to involve them. And it's so important to manage their expectations. So listening and engaging and creating space for the community to, to inform you and to do it early on in the process. So you have the benefit of their thinking as you're creating rather than having them react to something that you've already designed. And finally, I'll say just a couple of things. One is understanding yourself. You know, It's really important to be self-reflective and knowing your motivations, knowing your strengths and weaknesses and how to work toward your strengths and um, you know, try to mitigate your weaknesses. Um, and how to be a champion for equity and um, injustice. I think those are really some, some of the competencies that taken all together, paint a picture of someone that we would admire and want in public service. Angela, you mentioned earlier on when you were identifying the core competencies, the idea of the importance, if you will, of feasibility on the implementation side. And I was wondering what is being done from a research perspective to improve the understanding of actionable steps in making sure we apply these agile principles to government policy and program implementation correctly. And more importantly, really where I'm going is, what will it take for agile concepts to become part of the toolbox for public managers? Well, um, let me answer the first part of your question and then we'll go into the toolbox. Um, you know, research, fundamental research always offers new insights into challenges. And that goes, that just applies to public management as well. So what new insights are we seeing? Can we define them? Can we identify them? And then can we test them? So research will help us evaluate the success of some of these existing policies and programs. And are there consistencies in what we're seeing? And can they be applicable and replicated uh, across a variety of settings and a variety of audiences and problems? Because um, this is a very, this is not just a US centric uh, concept. International folks are, and some are well ahead of the US in terms of how they're looking at, at agility. Um, and, and research also explores the potential of emerging policies and management practices. What tools, they look at the tools 
uh, and it can evaluate the proper tools. So successful management of public policy benefits from research uh, conducted not only in public affairs, but also in research that's being done in many other disciplines. Because, you know, it's not just a pure discipline of management. It's taking the knowledge that's created in multiple disciplines in engineering and science and biology, chemistry, you know, transportation, and bringing those together in a way that we can affect policy. So this presents a very rich inventory of knowledge that, that is generated from research from which public administration can draw. But that's also a big challenge because of the enormity of the knowledge that's produced. So this is where the schools of public affairs really come in. They not only conduct research on how policy is developed and implemented, and they evaluate the success of this, uh, these implementations, their research aims to identify and understand factors that underlie problems, make sure we have, we're getting at the problem and underlie the challenges there. Their research tries to get at some core issues and then how to mitigate the problems or exploit um, some of the challenges to find good solutions. And I think public affairs schools and their research are unique in that their DNA uh, the DNA of their research is to move discovery to practice. So it's not just to create knowledge or to find new discoveries, but to apply that to practice um, and to serve as sort of the hub for interdisciplinary research where contributions of many disciplines can help inform policy and practice. So I think what we're seeing now is um, public administration researchers have begun to engage with these emerging agile practices in various ways. For example, they're starting to develop theories on why agility increases the potential for good results and how you start working with agile uh, constructs and organizational systems. Uh, they're looking at methodologies. They're trying to come up with you know, models of how this can work. Um, they're looking at how you can get into collaborative ways of developing programs and developing regulations um, and new modalities. And also they're looking at what we call stories or cases. You know, what can we learn from people that have already applied these kinds of principles and what were their successes and what were their failures? I also wanna give, uh, Michael, I also wanna take this chance to give a shout out uh, to the IBM Center uh, for supporting this type of research um, in its agenda. It's, you know, the IBM Center's had a long-standing commitment to looking at knowledge and insights and put them into action in the public sector. So in the 2021 uh, research areas that IBM is uh, soliciting and funding, one is called Driving Agility, and this research will focus upon challenges to implement these agile strategies in government. Uh, so the 2021 uh, research solicitation will help us in some ways to look at cases and to identify some of these modeling and uh, applicability issues that face us now with um, understanding more deeply um, the potential of agile, um, agile governance. Um, your second, the second part of your question is a, a more difficult one, but a simple one. It, it sounds weird to say that, but you know, what will it take uh, for Agile to become part of a toolkit? I think the simple answer is when it works, when the re, when the, it results in success and it brings the professionals working in this type of arena um, satisfaction that a job is well done. It, it needs to work. 
And in addition, managers have to be knowledgeable and practiced in agile approaches. So that's another um, um, challenge we face is making sure people understand it um, and, and, can, and see it as easily adapted to their current uh, work challenges and environments. It has to feel right and it can't be seen as yet another management in initiative that is forced upon people. Uh, it has to appear as a common sense way to approach difficult situation and not new, not new some formulaic methodology that one has to learn in a three-day training session. What prompted your interest in advancing the principles and practices of agile governance in public sector and within schools of public affairs and administration? So all of my work is focused on supporting what I, maybe you call the story of America in the context that we keep the nation's electorate informed, its lawmakers sharp, um, its policies relevant, um, and its government responsive. I was fortunate in my career to have extraordinary opportunities to work at levels of government in, in academia where I could pursue this purpose. I've been both discouraged and annoyed really by the number of times I found myself reading, as I sort of, I'm in this realm of deja vu. I keep, you know, we're discussing the same problems we discussed 30 or 40 years ago. And sometimes I'll look at policy and public administration articles from those years. And all you have to do is simply block out the names and clues to dates, and they are apropos today. You know, they represent the conditions today. So I believe that if we think about how we can create a narrative or a portrait that people can look at and say, aha, I see myself in that. Um, I think we can bring back some sense, a sensibility and urgency to what we do. Um, I think we need to bring back a common sense um, an appreciation for the power of the common good. Um, and we need to honor hard work. Um, we need to look for people who have grit and admire it. And we have to have a can-do approach to our problems. We need a critical mass of folks who can hold these values. And I think for me, the agile government governance framework uh, can open this up to a wide range and broad spectrum uh, of people and challenges. What are some of the key skills needed to effectively apply agile principles to the delivery of public services? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. 
I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Our guest today is Angela Evans, visiting fellow with the IBM Center for the Business of Government. One of your contributions to the series, you reference Ernest Boyer, who identified elements of scholarship that track closely with the ability to be agile, as we've discussed it, in facing challenges, and and more importantly, as you said earlier, seizing opportunities and not losing them that affect the public good. Could you elaborate and give our audience a sense of what those elements are? Yes. Michael, I am so pleased that you asked me about um, Dr. Ernest Boyer. People call him Ernie Boyer. He was a remarkable educator. He had a keen mind and was one of the standout thinkers in the 20th century. You know, he served as chancellor of the State University of New York and a United States Commissioner of Education before we had a Department of Education. And he was also the president of Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, an extraordinary man. Uh, But among his many writings, uh, he produced a 1991, and people considered this a seminal report. It's entitled, Scholarship Reconsidered Priorities for the Professoriate. And it's really one of the most thought-provoking and brave pieces um, that I have read and and studied. Um, And it challenged challenged the, the, the then current views of faculty priorities and the true meaning of scholarship. So he classified there were four kinds of scholarship. There is a scholarship of discovery, which is what we see as research. The the scholarship of integration. You know, when we're looking at how we can keep seamless educational programming throughout the life of an individual. Scholarship of the application, uh, how scholarship is used uh, to better society and the scholarship of teaching uh, where he really calls out the professoria to move uh, to ensure that the that research is not only their, their only focus, but that teaching is important. And five years later, after the seminal piece, he added um, the scholarship of engagement, which he defined as, as, as connecting resources of the university and making those applicable to the most pressing social, civic, and ethical problems facing our children, our schools, our teachers, and our cities. So he was very much in the context of academia. He played a real pivotal role in really pushing the academia uh, to see its role in society. And he, he spent his career offering ways to advance and harness the power that is inherent in all levels of education. He maintained that it was critically important to the health of our communities and the nation for the academy and the scholars to use their knowledge in fields to benefit society. He also saw that the dangers when academia disengages from society, when they become really myopic or insulated. Uh, And at the time he was writing, he found that there were research agenda and partnerships with industry and government, but generally universities had stopped being leaders in social change or in exercising levels of service that they once provided. They weren't getting out into the community and use their talents and capacity with real problems. And he saw this at the same time, the social, economic, and environmental concerns were real and growing and actually becoming global. His work just rang true uh, for today for me. So he felt, and I feel really, that the academy, so universities, education, really need an internal imperative, an internal drive to re-engage with society. So I found his, his writings to be 
while they're 35 years old, I, I feel that they, you know, they ring true today. I really think they, those were his, his elements that I just really aligned my thinking with. Angela, I was wondering, what, what is the scholarship of participation? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, this is something I added. For me, uh, the scholarship of participation is really critical to ensuring the relevance of our curriculum, really the cogency of our research, and the richness that we provide about the educational experiences um, we offer our students. Um, I see this because um, I see academia, it really can no longer move in relative isolation. So it must not only extend a warm welcome to communities outside of its campuses. So, you know, Ernie Boyer was talking about how academia needs to engage. You know, it's, it's driven by academia, but I think academia needs to open, open itself up to different kinds of community. It needs to aggressively seek and integrate expertise that's resident outside of the university. And to use this expertise to help guide its research, to help guide its teaching and enhance its teaching, and to help find ways that um, the service mission of the university is expanded. So my notion of the scholarship of participation is that the engagement of those in non-academic communities, you know, the civil society, nonprofit worlds and business are seen as integral in establishing the strategic direction of a university, that they have key roles in program development, and they help ground the university in relevant work. And so, you know, why did I add that? Because I have a hope that if we can do that, we can produce in the schools, we can produce individuals who enter public service with the minds and wills trained to seek information from those outside of their immediate environments or spheres of influence. They need to welcome those seeking or working in other career paths to join in and enhance the learning and dialogue so they can get different viewpoints and different expertise. So hopefully by doing this in the university, it becomes second nature to the students we're producing when they leave um, our setting. Another thing is I think it, it forces us to work on relevant issues. Those that matter to people now and those that challenge public managers now, those are the things we need to be working on now, you know, because if we're a minute late, we're irrelevant. So we have to be relevant now. And I think participation and having really good networks that are sustained and resilience, as you say, uh, really will help the university stay honest. And third, um, I think we need to teach how to successfully harness expertise that is resonant in the academic and community and move it to the, the community. Sort of the glue, we need to prepare people who will serve as the glue, the bridge, the lifeline between knowledge creation and knowledge application. Wonderful perspective. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, we talk about the toolbox. We talk about building a cadre uh, of, of, of current students maybe becoming the next um, generation of public servants. How important, Angela, is the curriculum and pedagogy of schools of public affairs and administration in this quest? Critical, foundational, they're core. And they, they, they serve as the anchors, the building blocks upon which students will continue to learn and grow when they leave the programs. So when you think about a rich curriculum, 
I think about a curriculum um, that's going to expose students to some of the best thinkers in their field and the best doers in their fields. And I'm, I'm really borrowing um, the terms thinkers and doers from President Johnson. Uh, he coined those terms when he actually founded the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He saw the importance of not only being well-versed in the knowledge and the theory uh, and the methodologies, but people who are moved to do something. So the curriculum is critical in helping people understand the that very powerful combination. I think curriculum also helps expose students to the known methods for identifying problems and listening to stakeholders. Because you know, I find sometimes people, if you don't have the right problem, you're not gonna have the right solution. So getting down to the real core of the problem, our curriculum can help them understand that and be critical in how you find that. I think curriculum also is important in challenging students to move beyond their comfort zone. So you're going to challenge them. You're going to really force them to make mistakes. And I think curriculum that's really strong and helps them learn how to really be uncomfortable uh, in situations is, is really important and offering them ways to see the power of innovation. A lot of people have great ideas and they're very creative, but you have to put those in context where they're gonna be acceptable and can be implemented. And I think curriculum needs to do that and force them to practice um, various methods for tackling problems. So there's not just one way or one methodology. It's not just understanding data and the importance of data. It's also understanding teams and human nature uh, and power um, structures. So those are all really important. Some of these people call soft skills. I don't call them soft skills. I call these essential skills where they're really understanding the dynamics of human interaction to solve problems. And these dynamics, sometimes they're good. Sometimes, you know, when we're teaching them and we're putting them in these settings uh, where they're looking at teamwork and collaboration, uh, they're seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of some of the work they have to do with their colleagues. But it's it's in our curriculum that we force them to make mistakes and to fail so that they can learn from these failures in an environment where the stakes are low. You know, once they get out into the real world where they're making decisions that affect real people, these are higher stake environments and we want them not to make those mistakes. That's a great point. You mentioned foundational. You use the word foundational. You use the word skills. I got to turn them together and say, you know, earlier on, you kind of gave us a, a little bit of a glimpse into what kind of competencies will be needed. I want to get into the foundational skills you identify for agility and public service and just kind of introduce our audience to a couple of them. And one in particular, what are some of the characteristics of agility in public service? And you mentioned earlier a force multiplier. Could you elaborate? Yeah, the term itself is hard to say. <laughs> force force multiplier, sort of a tongue twister. And I realized that for some who are listening to this, or this term seems a bit over the top, a bit sort of niche or boutique, you know, like a boutique-esque kind of term. Um, a presser is another term we could use uh, to convey the meeting that I'll talk about. And I'm open if anybody has alternatives. So um, I'll describe some of the characteristics. Uh, and I did a little bit, but I want to tell you, I want to share a story with you um, and uh, the listeners about how this actually formulated in my mind. Um, and I hope everyone listening know, knows Admiral William McRaven. Uh, he's, a, he's retired U.S. Navy four-star admiral who served as the ninth commander of United States Special Operations Command. 
uh, before he was named chancellor of the University of Texas system. Um, and he's credited for organizing and overseeing uh, the execution of Operation Neptune Spear, which was a special ops that um, killed Osama bin Laden. I had the very good fortune of working with him uh, while I served as the Dean of the LBJ School. Uh, he held an appointment as a tenured faculty professor at the school. And so when he completed his chancellorship, uh, we met and he was discussing what he might teach our graduate students. And it's through the conversations I had with him that I was starting to think about how do we expose, how do we use him who is an extraordinary leader uh, in some of the most high stakes, <laughs> I mean, life-threatening situations, how do we really tap into him so our students can understand him and understand how people like him work? And so this is where, you know, when I was talking to him, we were talking about how do you, the ability to bring people together, even though they may not like or even hate each other, and how you hold them together over time. You know, that's an incredible skill. How you make decisions, even when you lack the full scope of information you need to make that, those decisions. You can't wait, it has to be done. So how do you make those decisions? How do you decide when and how to delegate your authority? When it's time to give up your leadership role and pass it on to somebody? Is that somebody ready? Are you ready? How do you know when it's time to act? When it's time to move? When it's time to sit still? And um, how do you regain trust uh, when you've lost it? So we were talking about a lot of these things in the context of his career, but I was thinking like, you know, this is something that can happen and is important to all of us. Michael, I think you can lead. Leading is easy when you have money, when you have time, when you have buy-in, and when you have full control and the stakes are low. <laughs> leading is important when you don't have any of the above. So this force multiplier is just an attempt to help us think through the kinds of experiences and skills and the tools that you talked about earlier that we can give students um, as they leave our programs and actually help support those when they're actually in roles of uh, public policy um, in the policy communities. Mm, that's a great point. You know, the other foundational skill I'd like to talk about, or at least kind of delve in a little bit, is the importance of agile public service to engage in rapid iteration and coalition building to solve problems. Why? Is this essential? You kind of hinted at it earlier in the force multiplier. I think these uh, segue right into one another in that we have to be iterative and build coalitions. Why is that? Well, you hit on it. You know, these aren't not separable. You know, as we talked about earlier on, these, these competencies aren't se separable. And you say, okay, I've got this competency, there's this box. They really are very interrelated. Uh, they're sort of a cohesive whole. And, th and, they're, and they're, these two are critical. You know, this, this rapid iteration and coalition building are critical. Just think about the enormity of challenges we face today, the ones we talked about earlier, and the need to hunt for reliable and objective information and to really sleuth out, you know, what are we really going to be finding here when we, when we start um, looking at these problems? So with rapid iteration and coalition building, we're kind of trying to build pathways to problem solving. Okay, can we learn as we go? So we can't just say, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna deviate it from it. No, no, no. You have to start thinking about it. I'm learning something, something new has come up. I'm not gonna ignore it because it hasn't fit into my template. I'm gonna have to integrate that. So how do I adjust my designs? How do I adjust the changes that I'm making to my methodology? How do I adjust the people 
that I want to help me with. The other thing about this rapid iteration is the ability also to release some things that, you know, they're, they're questionable, they get in the way, they're kind of noise, and you, even though you had invested in them, they may need to be like, let go. So how do you do that? And that's a part of iteration. You know, we have to look for the core of the problem. Sometimes we think we know what the problem is, but as we work to address it, we find there was a deeper problem. And so that's another part of how this iteration works. You keep getting, you know, you keep adjusting and, and sleuthing and getting down to it. The objective of any public work is to improve the situation, to meet the problem head on and try on, to try on ways to mitigate bad effects or to, um, to get the best minds engaged. And sometimes these aren't you know, straight paths. These are paths that take us in many directions, but having the ability to know where your north is, to take the detours when you have to, to get back on track is extremely important. Um, and so that's why I think both of these are um, important parts of the makeup or the portrait of um, an agile public servant. To what extent, Will adopting competencies that advance the practice of agile governance require full review and potential remake, not only of public affairs and administration courses, and this is where I'm going, but how they are taught and by whom, and I was hoping you could elaborate on your perspective. Sure. You know, Michael, if we value agility and the skills that underpin it, then the answer to this question is that we will need a full review of our programs. This may be difficult and some would say unlikely to happen since most programs are in settings that are relatively conservative. You know, universities are relatively conservative when it comes to change. Uh, professors, uh, especially at a tenured level may not be interested in change. And public affairs schools are often smaller schools within universities and often don't carry the same clout with top leadership in the university that's enjoyed by you know, the STEM disciplines in the business schools. But even some of the processes used to assess and validate curriculum by our own professional organizations, that you know, they are meant to, re to ensure that we're fresh and we're relevant. These are slow, they're process laden, and they project a bias for the status quo. Um, these are you know, ways that we become accredited either through um, our organizations or through universities. And so we have to think, are our schools and programs ready to ask hard questions and committed to addressing the answers they find? Uh, will they be supported by university leadership? And at this point, I can't answer yes confidently. I'm hopeful, but I I'm not sure. I believe that what we will need is a consortium of schools who are willing to come together to develop new approaches and test them. And um, I think this can be done you know, I think this has to be done. How can agile principles and practices be taught in schools of public affairs and administration? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. 
Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Angela Evans, visiting fellow with the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are those questions that these schools of public affairs and public administration should be considering in determining the relevancy of their programs and the early success of their graduates and putting into practice this vision we've been talking about of, of adding agile governance and principles to public service? I'm a firm believer that self-examination is critical in, in all the aspects of life. And this is so critical in public affairs school. So being aggressive in examining your programs and the curriculum, the way you teach it, what we call the pedagogy and the researcher support should be commonplace. It should be something that is just part of the natural way of working. And it shouldn't be taking place every several years in conjunction with some outside accreditation or university protocols that I spoke about just um, recently. So we have to understand the experience of the graduates of public affairs schools. We had to assess how the employers who bring them on think of their preparation, and we have to think of their overall impact on policy. So I offered in my blog, I offered some questions that I thought programs might want to consider. And so here's a question. If the biggest challenge of the future is uncertainty, what concrete ways are you preparing your students for this? It, you know, second, if you see a public policy problem, how do you decide to engage your program in mitigating or addressing this problem? Do you have a strategy for this engagement? If you agree that current socioeconomic and political issues are global uh, in reach, how do you address U.S. interests while accounting for global influences? Are your traditional approaches to domestic and international issues the most appropriate way to prepare students to address this problem? Or are we missing the boat on global? How do you prepare your students to facilitate the engagement of communities in developing options for attacking um, problems or tackling challenges? And are your faculty undertaking research that's narrowly focused on more technical aspects of public affairs matters? And if so, why? And how are you going to broaden the audience for your faculty works? We can do this, Michael, but I think the real results of this work will be seen decades from now when the graduates of our, our institutions are making the decisions about the development and implementation of policy. I can't know or predict if graduates skilled in this new approach, if people accept this, will be leading policy debates, debates or making the decisions at top uh, levels. But I do know that I have confidence that if we give them the proper tools and if the curriculum and the schools take the chance to change, to keep re-examining, to you know, offer new ways of doing things, that they will help us tackle our problems. And I expect their work will help the public gain trust in government again as well. You know, um, Angela, I was wondering, because we were talking about the questions they should ask. You did a wonderful job there. But I'm trying to get a sense of what should schools of public affairs and administration 
consider in terms of new environments and embracing new possibilities to achieve a successful reimagining of public affairs education? Because one of your one of your blog posts is reimagining a public administration education. I'm wondering what should they consider a departure from as is to what could be? Right now, I think our schools are limited by tradition. You know, we have a traditional way of counting credits and a traditional way of thinking about how we develop course curriculum and a traditional way of presenting our classes. So I think we need to form a new vision for public um, affairs education. And the word I use is really open up open it up. Uh, just let's try some new things. So for example, one of the things I talk about in the blog is, do we have to teach in three hour segments, 15 weeks a semester, or if you're in a trimester, can we teach, you know, at two hours a week? Do we have to do that? And is that really how learning takes place? So for example, why don't we say, you know, you can come for, you know, every night for two weeks, and then you can go away and then come back. We, we don't, have to do this. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has done, and it was forced, you know, this change, this total 180 degree adjustment to our curriculum, going from in-person to virtual to hybrid, has really shown how we can change the way we teach and the settings in which we teach um, to open it up to people coming in virtually, taking our students to different settings. All that has to be on the table. One of the things I talk about too is opening our program development to new partners. You know, how does the business and the public sector really think about our programs? Can they help us construct the curriculum? Can they bring us cases? Can we integrate people who are in public service into the classroom and learning at the same time that our graduates are learning so that we have a mixture of generations and a mixture of experiences? There's nothing to say we can't do this. I mean, we can do things like this that we need to do. We don't have to be teaching at the university campus. So one of the things that I mentioned is like you're, if you're looking at public finance, why don't we take the students and put them in places where they're working in public finance at city, at city levels or at um, state levels, or even in you know organizations that are board driven, have those courses take place there with people who can be mentors or are learning at the same time. So those are some of the things that I'm really hoping and in a lot of ways, opening up the experiential end of the learning, you know, really looking at ways to bring students up on face-to-face -to -face to, with people who are actually on the ground, you know, with their sleeves rolled up, applying the elbow grease to some of these problems. And, and you do mention uh, the importance of having practitioners involved in teaching. Uh, what are the benefits of that? Oh, Wow. So in full disclosure, I've been a practitioner in the world of academia, and it's been an interesting journey, which we'll save for another time. <laughs> but for now, but for now, I want to share some of the importance, I think. I think the, you know, the really successful development of the skills and resources students need to be agile depends on the direct and consistent participation of those who've been there, done that. Uh, and so this is not a new concept. Uh, practitioners have been involved in public affairs programs since the creation of these schools, and it's been a big part of the LBJ school's DNA. But when practitioners serve as faculty members, they bring in really uh, 
real world experiences, tacit understandings of how organizations and policy making actually works. You know, we call it the sausage making. They were there. They were instrumental. They can bring those um, experiences to the students and they can show how curriculum aligns with what we've been talking about, the real world and what policymakers need. And it may be the most beautiful piece of policy analysis you've done, but if it's not relevant in the setting of uh, the policymaker or it can be implemented, it's really not worth too much. Um, so what they do is they bring in this experience and what they do is also they create, well, people often don't realize they have an extraordinary network of practitioners and people out there. These are professional schools. So helping our students reach into those networks and have the benefit of the power of those networks is also um, really an important enrichment uh, for exposing students to their careers and to experiences. So again, like we talk about that, they're gonna be making mistakes or learn from other people's mistakes when they're in the academic setting. That's wonderful. So Angela, before we leave, what's next in this area? And what are some of the key challenges in achieving the vision you outlined in your blog series for the IBM Center? I think the most thing, the most important thing now is we need to create a, a really a critical mass of public uh, leaders, of educators, of people who are interested to see the value in, in agile government. And this, and this is a challenge. First, we have to get people educated about what it means and what it doesn't mean and how it's different from other kinds of movements. And I see that through some of the things we're doing right now. How do we get the word out? How do we invite people to come in? How do we be open to new ideas? How do we create stories that people can see the actual application of these principles and how they've worked for people? Um, so spreading the word and engaging researchers and practitioners in thinking through these things with us, and hopefully by, by gaining their endorsement and their enrollment in the ideas of advancing this is going to be very, very critical. And then I think a big challenge we have is holding coalitions together, because Michael, you know, we can have some great leaders and we have some great initiatives, and as soon as a leader leaves or as soon as the center closes, it kind of dissipates. This is something that we need to really get into the bloodstream of, of public administration. And there's it's just a lot, there's a lot of things we have to do, but I'm just hoping that we don't accept inertia. We just don't accept the fact that we have to stand still and it's too big and people don't understand it. So I think these are the challenges. And a big challenge for me really is to try to get the academic community fully engaged in this so they see this not as a threat or another, you know, kind of, okay, here we go, another methodology we can look at look at and, and test, but really something fundamental to instill in our students. Well, Angela, those wonderful insights, and I, I really thank you for joining us today. I really, I, I so appreciate this opportunity, Michael, to talk to you and to talk to your audience. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Angela Evans visiting fellow with the IBM Center for the Business of Government and former Dean of Public Affairs at the LBJ School at the University of Texas, Austin. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us.
How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.